Welcome to the podcast Benzo Tired. I'm your host, Naftal Benesti, and I'm Dutch. Join me on my journey into the world of benzodiazepines, withdrawal, bind, and more. Disclaimer, always consult your physician for medical advice. This is episode 32, Emma Hames, and today it's April 15th, 2023. In this episode, Emma Hames, a benzo survivor, songwriter, musician, artist, and producer of the documentary film Playing With Life. At age 23, Emma had contracted an unknown virus and suffered limited lung capacity and trouble breathing normally. Emma began developing severe anxiety and panic attacks. After the diagnosis of her limited lung capacity, she was treated with steroids and bromazepam. At some point, Emma decided to quit the drug cold turkey. Not even aware she was prescribed benzodiazepine in the first place, Emma was thrown into a horrendous acute benzo withdrawal without anyone, including herself, knowing what happened to her. After the so manyth ambulance she was in, a nurse informed her she was in benzo withdrawal and that there was no cure. Emma was disabled for a very long time, but in her years towards recovery, she connected to her creativity. Hi, Emma. Welcome to the show. Could you share with the audience what happened that led to a prescription for a benzodiazepine? Yeah. Um, firstly, hi, Naftal. Thank you so much for inviting me onto the show. Um, where to start with this? I mean, as you know, with your own story, it's so hard to know how to succinctly explain what's happened, but I will do my best. Um, my story begins with a virus that I had about gosh, 10, 12 years ago now. Um, I caught it whilst on a teaching placement and yeah, I just kind of knew something was serious and different from your standard flu or virus. Um, and went to the doctors and they said nothing was wrong. It was just stress. Um, and fast forward a year, I, again, they were saying the same thing, but again, I knew something was wrong and I just had this increasing feeling of not being able to breathe properly. So um, I then had an opportunity to move to France and I figured if it was just stress then moving to the south of France would be a win-win scenario all round um but of course nothing changed and in terms of my health and actually it got worse and I just increasingly again felt like I couldn't breathe properly um and a few months after living there I'm really it really getting to the point where I've just felt like at any point I could stop breathing which was pretty horrendous to deal with I was finally sent to a specialist and he said, you're, you've got asthma and your, your lungs are at 60% capacity because of this virus. So he explained to me that, cause I've gone a year without breathing properly, um, the lack of oxygen in my bloodstream can then cause severe anxiety. And we now know from the likes of COVID that COVID can cause severe anxiety in itself. And then you add in the uncertainty and the, the knowing that something is wrong, but not having the validation and the treatment. Uh, obviously adds another layer of anxiety to that. So I started having panic attacks and the result of that was being prescribed a benzodiazepine alongside the intensive steroid treatment to sort of repair and heal my lungs. So I was given that, I was on it for four years um, and I found out in 2016 that I should have been on it for a week maximum and that's uh that was kind of the start of the whole next chapter of um coming off them which is a whole other story so yeah but, but did anyone tell you what that you were being prescribed a benzodiazepine and was it specifically for the anxiety or did they just tell you like this is a part of the treatment or i 
funnily enough, I'd only really heard the term benzodiazepine probably around 2019, 2019. So I had no awareness of what a benzodiazepine or a benzo was at that time. I'd never come across them, at least consciously, sort of in my life up to that point. Um, and nobody ever sat me down and said, hey, we want to prescribe you this drug, but it's it's um, it comes with a lot of risks and requires very serious disciplined management of it, both with ourselves and with yourself. Um, do you want to take it? It was, I just remember, I think I had a sort of panic attack. I was on holiday at the time uh, with my parents and my partner at the time, and I had a panic attack and my dad just drove me to the nearest doctor. Um, and it was somebody that I'd never seen before because it was a holiday location. And he just, just sort of after 10 minutes, just looked at me and said, um, you know, if you want to, if you want to feel better, if you want to calm down, then, then take these. And he just sort of slid them across the table. And, and that was that. And I just trusted in that. And, um, yeah, that was the, that oh. was the extent of what I was told. Wow. So, um, what happens in your journey when you decide that you want to come off the drug? Well, this is, this is a sort of two part answer to this because I wanted to come off it within a few months. Um, and funnily enough, although it's not funny, obviously, the drug actually was quite common in France. So um, I knew of other people that were taking it fairly casually in terms of just wanting, you know, wanting it to to, to help them sleep. Um, and sorry, going back to the, I just realized I didn't answer the, the last part of your previous question. Um, it was predominantly for the anxiety and the panic attacks. So it wasn't a case of here's, here's this other drug for part of your sort of holistic treatment plan with what you're going through it was just this other doctor that I saw randomly that was like you should probably take this if you want your you know if you want things to return to quote normal um so yeah I, I after a few months of being on it despite the fact that I knew it was kind of a common thing for people to take um I just didn't like the feeling of being drugged up which is how it made me feel I felt very sedated and it did kind of stop the panic attacks, but the payoff was feeling incredibly sedated all the time and I didn't like it. Asked to come off it within a few months, as I say, and doctors refused to let me come off it. And they just sort of said, you need this, you're someone who needs this, which at the time didn't sit with me well. And now, now that I'm older and aware of what's going on and what I was going through at the time, um, it just isn't isn't a good enough sort of assessment by the doctors to be able to say that, especially when these aren't doctors that had known me a long time. I just moved there, um, and they were making this assessment upon seeing me at my I don't want to say worst, but at my sort of most scared and anxious, based off the fact that I hadn't breathed properly for a year and just moved to a country where I didn't speak the language, and you know it was all big changes and um, being worried for my health. So I. I was 23, 24 at the time. I trusted in the doctors as most of us do generally. Um, and I stayed on it and they kept increasing my dosage actually. Um, and finally in 2016, seven, yeah, it was 2016. I, I came back to the UK cause I was having all these increased sort of weird symptoms going on and the French doctors weren't really, um, helping me. And 
it was then that I was told in the first appointment back in the UK that I should have been given this particular drug, this particular benzodiazepine for a week maximum. And they, they basically told me that in the UK, they don't prescribe that particular drug because of how potent it is. Um, but they could offer me a sister version to taper off, which I didn't really understand what tapering was, why it was so important. And also I've been, you know, essentially drugged up for four years at that point. So my clarity of thought wasn't as good as it, as it possibly could have been, um, to make a huge life decision like that. And because I just been told I should have been on this drug for, for, for a week maximum and had been on it for four years and had trusted the doctors that it was the right and safe thing to do. I was really, really unsure and reluctant to trust in another doctor telling me to go on another version of this drug um, as the safest thing for me. So I decided to just come off it and just not kind of go back to France for a repeat prescription. And um, and yeah, that's when, uh, that's when I came off and all hell broke loose um, kind of after that really. So did you like quit cold turkey or within a weeks, days, something? It was it was cold turkey. Yeah. Whoa. So there was whoa. no there was no tapering. Yeah. Okay. Well, when did you start to notice the the withdrawal? It was pretty much straight away. Um, I kind of braced myself for impact, so to speak. So um don't know if if you or any of your listeners have, have seen the film Requiem for a Dream. Um but I'd watched it when I was a teenager and it put me off drugs for life because I just thought I don't, you know, I don't want to risk my health and that looks like absolute hell. And I thought it was going to be like that. I thought it was going to be sort of night sweats and terrors and shaking and all this kind of stuff for a few weeks, maybe a couple of months, but at least then I'd be free from the drug. And it did, it did happen that way, except it didn't stop. Um, and I just, I just, didn't really have a choice but to try and get on with my life and get a new job so I got um I would say a few months after that I just forced myself to go and get the train to London and go to a, an interview for a teaching job and I got the job and I started in January so I think I think I cold turkeyed around October 2016 right. and it was it was January 2017 that I started this job which is a really really demanding job class were incredibly challenging um i was supposed to be trained up by the previous teacher who had walked out that day because it was such a difficult job <laughs> mm -hmm. so um i was doing that job for about six weeks and it was just ridiculously demanding and i didn't really have any time to rest um and i went out for drinks six weeks after i started that job as i say like i just went out for a um for a couple of drinks and had a few beers and it was the morning after that my body just snapped um, and we now know that there's this thing called kindling where if you go back on the drug after being off it for some time it can cause a much more serious injury so I think I kindled on alcohol so for anyone listening who's not aware benzodiazepines are actually used in the treatment of alcoholism because they work on the same part of the brain yeah they so work on the GABA um, receptors so yeah right so I, and, and again, I wasn't aware of this. No doctor had ever told me the risks with this. So I think because I had this night out, I basically kindled accidentally on um, by by having a few beers. And yeah, the, that's when it really got very serious and I became pretty much housebound overnight after that. 
So in terms of, could you describe to us a little bit what happened in terms of symptoms after your night out? I had extreme insomnia to start with. So the, the, the wiredness is, um, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this, just one of the worst symptoms where you can't switch your your body off it's it's like being stuck in flight or fight mode and um for anyone listening who's not experienced benzodiazepine withdrawal it's it's essentially like being given 10 espresso shots when you know you need to sleep when you're already sleep deprived and you just can't sleep mm -hmm. so that happens and uh, yeah i had I had to go to school the next day to work and i forced myself to and um interestingly enough i actually despite living in london only had to walk around the corner to get to my my work. So that was inverted commas lucky, but even that sent my heart rate sky high. And I remember just that day getting into the classroom and I just tried to begin the class and my heart was just pounding out my chest in a way that I'd not really experienced before. And um, yeah, asked my my sort of teaching assistants to take over the class. And I went and sat in the staff room and I said, I think I need an ambulance. Um, and so for some reason, I can't remember why, but I think I think the the staff at school said it's it's better if you go home and get the ambulance rather than happening hmm. here. <laughs> Interesting. So, yeah. So I had to If you're I, dying, I, please go home. <laughs> I, I can't remember exactly how it went down, but that's that's vaguely what I, I remember just feeling like I had to go home to get the ambulance whether that was my decision or or I felt compelled to do it based on something that was said I can't remember maybe it's not fair of me to to say that without being sure but um either way I went home so again you know heart pounding out my chest walked home sort of the 10-15 minutes and um yeah I got home and the ambulance crew came and they said your your heart rate's at 180 bpm so this was probably an, an hour or two after it, it had started Mm -hmm. So it had calmed down a bit by then and it was at 180 and oh, um, they said, we need to take you to the hospital. Um, and so, yeah, I was driven to St. Thomas's hospital in London and um, just absolutely terrified in the back of the ambulance and it calmed down by itself eventually. But I thought, I thought, you know what, at least I'm going to get the answers now as to what's happening, why this is, why I'm not feeling better. Um, and because they do... just for for the audience, um, you you went to a, a doctor in in the UK, and they they mentioned to you like, oh, that drug you should have only been on it for like a week, and something about tapering, which you didn't do. But you at that at this point, you're still kind of not informed about what benzodiazepines are and what this what what could have happened. Yeah, and I I remember sort of saying, oh, am I feeling really really bad because I've just come off this drug? And people saying to me as a medical professional saying to me, no, you would have had a four week withdrawal period maximum. And I was like, well, that's really weird because I'm, I just don't feel better. Um, and at the time, because I, I was going to the doctors, I was trying to get it sorted. Um, even when I'd started the new job, I was you know, having to go to the doctors and get someone to cover this hour and this hour so that I could go and see a doctor. And at that point they thought it was um, vitamin D deficiency. So I was like, man, vitamin D deficiency is really bad. <laughs> this is really, this <laughs> oh my is really God. serious. Oh my um, goodness. Oh, 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 okay. Yeah. So so anyway, they were my main, they were my main symptoms, just absolute 
fatigue, um, wiredness, and a complete oversensitization of the, the, the central nervous system that meant I couldn't leave my flat without my heart sort of going to crazy, crazy speeds. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that was the beginning of it. And other symptoms then sort of came into the picture as well and probably had anywhere between 30, 40 symptoms on average for, for several years at least. So, so how is it like from that point that you quit your job or tell me what happens in, in the rest of your, you know, recovery phase or, you know, being sick a lot? Yeah. Um, it was, it was pretty obvious within a week or two that I wasn't going to be able to keep my job. Um, and then it was a case of finding out or at least trying to find out what was wrong so that I could get back to living a quote, normal life. And I was going to the doctors, I, I was averaging an ambulance a week. And every time I'd go in, you know, all my obs were, were quote normal. So no one really knew what to do with me. So there was no treatment, there was no understanding of what was going on. Um, and it was just getting increasingly difficult to know how to move forward, because I was essentially housebound, and for all intents and purposes, disabled, and couldn't function but yet nobody nobody could tell me why um and at the time i was incredibly fortunate that where i was staying the landlord was so kind he just said to me don't worry about paying rent until you until you um figure this out but obviously you know i didn't really want to do that past a month um and then ended up staying with with family to try and get the answers um and i remember a doctor telling me it might take up to a year to find out what's wrong with you. And I just thought, a year, how can, I don't, who has a year to put aside of their life? Um, right. If that makes sense. Like that just felt like such a horrific amount of time. Um, but of course, looking back, I wish it had just been a year. <laughs> it yeah. been a, and it's shorter, so vague, so yeah. like, I mean, you know, maybe there were, it's just so dumb. Doctors can be so dumb, but okay. Anyways, when, <laughs> when do you find out that it is the benzodiazepine that was the root cause of, well, you know, your illness? 2019. So yeah, that was what, two years, two years after the fact. And, and how did you discover it? I, at that point, I'd had about 34 ambulances um, over that two year period. And it was my 35th ambulance crew that had come out um, because I'd woken up in the middle of the night with, with this kind of like cramp in the heart feeling, racing heart. And then um, basically the whole room just started caving in on itself. Um, really, I've not actually had that experience since, thank God, because it was terrifying. Um, but yeah, the ambulance crew came out and they were the first set of medical professionals that actually sat down with me for the amount of time it took to go through all the symptoms, all the, the history. It took two hours. Um, and they just said to me at the end of it, one of them just said, I, I think, I think it was that drug you were on in France. And I was just thinking, no, but I've asked so many doctors that before. And they've all said, it's not, they said it'd be a, a like a month maximum. She said, I've seen this before with other patients that have been on this class of drug. Um, it's a benzodiazepine. And I was like, benzo, benzo what? I don't <laughs> even know what that is. Yeah. Um, and by this point, I'd gone like for pretty much every test under the sun and everything had come back negative. So I was, to be honest, I was a little bit skeptical. I just thought it's just somebody else's theory. But 
you know, after two years, you're just kind of a bit exasperated with thinking, oh, this is going to be it. Um, but then I started researching it and I was talking to my dad about it. And we all kind of came to the conclusion that that does kind of make sense. And from there, that's when I started researching it and going on social media and hashtagging benzodiazepines and seeing what other people were going through and then realizing that my story is not unique in the sense that everybody pretty much that I know and I'm sure you know have gone through that kind of gaslighting not being believed um and and that's kind of when it all really started to click into place for me just just what this was and and once you realize that you know you're basically having bind you know or um, protracted withdrawal as you will um could you share with us what you did from that point on because obviously you were still very sick um at that time yeah um that's, that's a really good question and I'm just trying to sort of think of the best way to to sum it up um I think initially I went to see a another doctor um who was probably over my hundredth doctor slash medical professional that I'd seen um in that time period and she was the first one that when I told her what the paramedics had said um she was the one that said we've we've poisoned you but there's nothing we can do about it and because i went to her asking what you've just asked me you know how do i manage this how do i recover from this um and she just held up her hands and said i don't know like we just don't know enough about what this is and what it does to the body and the brain to know how to help you i clearly do not want to give you any more drugs and i i was there was no way i was going to take any more drugs anyway um same I should say medication I don't really like saying the word drugs um but yeah it's she just kind of said to me I think you you've just got to kind of figure this out yourself and uh, so that's what I try to do I, as I say that's why I started researching it and I think connecting with other people that had gone through this really helped sort of a feel validated but b find the knowledge of things that could help and and as you know and as I'm sure many people listening know there isn't really a quote treatment. It's really about sort of um, mainly letting time do its thing. And I'm so grateful for the fact that our, our brains and bodies are incredible machines that are trying to find their way back to homeostasis, that are trying to sort of get that equilibrium back. Um, and that there's an innate intelligence that's going on without us having to kind of program it to do so. So that on the one hand, that's an amazing thing. But on the other hand, obviously time is precious and you're you're suffering throughout all of that that repair work going on. So it's not an easy thing to just feel like you've got to sit back and let time do its thing. Um, so aside from that, I just, I tried to do what I guess were sensible things for, for general health and recovery, um, or sorry, health and recovery in general. So sort of trying to sleep, trying to rest, trying to um, eat clean foods, um, definitely cut out sort of processed um, sugar, um, cutting out gluten, I think helped a lot or at least reducing it. I'm not completely gluten free, but I've massively reduced it. And I think that has helped, especially with heart palpitations and things. Um, and, and honestly, just, just thinking about the future in, and trying to be really positive with it and, and trying to work on my dreams and rebuilding my life. And can I come out of this even stronger? Can I come out of this healthier and stronger than I would have been if I hadn't have gone through it? And I think that, that kind of setting myself that challenge and that north star i think um 
helps a lot as well, that kind of mindset. Um, not that it's been a, a smooth and easy, easy path um, along the way. It's definitely a nonlinear process, but yeah. Now, um, I know that you tapped into your creativity during your recovery uh, phase, as you will. Could you share with the audience um, what you do and what you're doing and what you did in that period of you know recovery? Yeah, so I, I mean, before Benzo's, um, I played in bands and I, I wrote songs and I paint and do photography and just generally enjoy creativity um, in, in all its forms. Um, and when I was sort of going through this recovery from time to time, I just pick up my guitar and just sort of play something or, you know, pick up a pen or set of paints and, and paint or draw something. And I found that those, um, those just really, for me, they're just a kind of meditation. They just keep you in the moment without, without sort of getting too worried about the past or the future or the present. Um, and I found that they were, they were really good at just really sort of zoning in on, on living in the now and being focused on something. To be honest, I think it, it helped restore a sense of worth as well, because when you can't work and when you're just sort of alone at home for days, weeks, months, years on end, to then be able to create something out of nothing is just a kind of, yeah, quite a, quite a, um, amazing thing to be able to do. So, um, yeah, and fulfilling. I, for me, like making the pot, this is my thing, what I do in withdrawal, yeah. <laughs> I make the podcast, it's fulfilling because like you said, I, I totally relate because I'm not confident enough yet to go back to work because, you know, I could get waves or whatever. Um, right. So it's, there's so much uncertainty in the future. So, but at least um, I'm doing something that I like to do that, you know, gives me positive energy and, you know, I can, and it's super flexible. So I, I, mm. I, I do recordings when I'm not sick, you know, so it's, it's, it's yeah. a great way to um, keep busy and also trying to mean something for other people like us. So could you share Definitely. with the audience, um, how, how did the, uh, did the idea of making a documentary um, happen? Yeah. So I think, I think I was just like on the laptop one day and was on Reddit and was just in one of the filmmaker communities. Um, I'd always wanted to make documentary films. That was that was a, a dream of mine that I had sort of alongside music and um, just always felt like one day I'd be doing something with music and something with a documentary film or a, or a production company or something. And I um, was in this forum and I just said, oh, I'm feeling a bit frustrated because I'm going through this injury and I can't, I can't work on my career. I can't do any of this stuff right now. And somebody, somebody just said, well, you realize that's like quite an interesting idea for a documentary. And, and then it just clicked and I thought, yeah, there's, there's something I can do with this. This is, this is a story that probably needs to be told anyway, because if I'd known what this was, um, and that there is hope, A, I probably wouldn't have gone through it in the first place, but B, if, if I was going through it, but could have seen a film that showed somebody recovering and rebuilding their life, that would have been immensely powerful in, in my own journey. And so that's where the idea sort of, the embryo of the idea came about. And then I I just, 
I just kind of felt like I wanted to link that creativity into it because I feel it's something we, we can all tap into, um, whether we consider ourselves an artist or not. We all have that creative streak, whether it's cooking or sewing or photography or even creating a business. It's all forms of creativity, obviously. So I thought, can I tell this story? Can I make this film in a way that celebrates sort of creativity and how the power of that may be coupled with the power of sort of that sounding too cheesy, like the power of dreams and the power of really trying to get your life to where you want it to be. Can I tell that story? And so um, that's where the idea to write the soundtrack for the film as part of the film and as part of my recovery came about. And um, yeah, that's, that's how it all started really. And and what's the status of, of your documentary right now? Yeah, so it's in pre-production at the moment. Um, I've been sort of quietly behind the scenes documenting um, what I can when I can and doing what the, the original plan was, which was to sort of document this journey of getting back on my feet um, and recovering from this whilst writing music um, as part of that journey. So it's in, yeah, in pre-production. So the next step is to um, start getting the funding in so I can then build the team and get it into production and, and bring it all to life. Yeah, I think the more the better documentaries, because I think if you would have a documentary per person that was harmed this way, <laughs> this was going to be <laughs> yeah. a lot. Um, but yeah, I think it's great that you're doing that and trying to raise awareness um, in your own way. Um, there are some other things that you're up to, like your podcast. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the podcast is called um, Cassette Monkeys, hashtag press play. Um, so it's sort of hashtag press play, but under the umbrella of, of Cassette Monkeys, which is the, the brand that I was sort of um, started building up alongside the film as a way to celebrate creativity. And the podcast, the, the tagline is, is kind of overcoming adversity and, and building dreams. Um, so it's stories uh, along the spectrum of 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 those kind of um, those kind of themes. And uh, yeah, I began it last year. Um, met some amazing people and had some great conversations. And like you, it is just such a satisfying thing to do. Um, it's something that we can do whilst going through this. We have that flexibility with it. It's it's really nice to connect with other people. Um, generally speaking, but obviously being able to connect with people such as yourself and others that have gone through this, that's incredibly, again, validating and, and comforting, I think. So yeah, I've been doing that and I, I really enjoy it and um, got got lots more episodes to uh, edit and get out there soon and um, more interviews coming up. So it's sort of running steadily alongside the film and and um, the music that I'm working on too. That's that's great. So in, in terms of you know, years ago when you quit cold turkey, as you will, in terms of, you know, some people will ask, like, how much have you healed? But my question would be, like, what do you notice in terms of a difference from then and now? Wow, yeah, that's a big question. I mean, back then, I I would say I was just probably for the first two, three years, it was very severe to the point where I couldn't really leave the flat to go for a walk. I was struggling to even have a shower or bath because it would send my heart rate sky to, to sky high levels. Um, obviously you force yourself and you force yourself to make food and, and everything else, but it was just absolute hell. And then um, I would say up to last year, I was still struggling to go out a lot. I, I was making some improvements um, and trying to do a bit of exercise, but obviously taking it 
taking it slow and not wanting to overdo it, not wanting to push myself too much, um, whilst also pushing yourself enough to feel like you're making progress and you are seeing progress. And now I would say that, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's much better. And I feel like I have more cognitive ability. Um, I had a lot of depersonalization, derealization at the beginning. I didn't understand how I'd ever lived in France. Um, it was, yeah, it was a scary time, both psychologically and, and physically. And now I can feel, I can feel that my body wants to just keep healing itself and repairing itself. So generally, um, improved um by a lot um but i i currently i'm now dealing with the remnants of covid which has sort of somewhat resensitized the cns and um yeah just just wanting to sort of make sure i don't push myself too hard and, and recover from that so i can keep keep going from strength to strength really yeah that that's great so what would you um i always ask my guest uh this question so what would you advise people currently in withdrawal or in protract protracted withdrawal? Is there anything that you would want to give the audience in terms of advice or something that helped you a lot? Yeah, that's um, again, another really, really good question. I want to have a think about that because obviously it's, um, it's an important thing to share with people. I think first of all, so I'd, I'd say there's sort of two categories of, of answers to this. I think there's, preventative and then I um, think there's proactive measures to be taken and by preventative I mean the main risk that all of us have whilst going through this is then being prescribed more drugs that cause further injury and I've had this with myself I've known it with other people where they feel like they've pretty much recovered and then needed an antibiotic or needed um, you know something else and it's it's for whatever reason caused another injury so I think that's the the thing that people have to be aware of. Um, at the same time, I don't want to say be terrified of all drugs because I think some people can take certain things at a certain point and be absolutely fine. But the reason why I say be preventative is I think this is where it comes down to research and awareness and um, just being able to inform yourself and put the time in, do the research to know that if you do need something else or doctors are trying to prescribe you something else, make sure that you do have that knowledge as to whether or not it's safe or at least what the risks are so that you're making an informed decision as to whether or not you're going to take that risk or not. Um, so that's the first thing. I think the, the proactive measures, I would say, um, yeah, just, just kind of auditing your whole life, your whole lifestyle and looking at where you can make improvements so that a, you actually feel like you're pulling out all the stops to let your body heal and do its thing. Um, but B, you're going to feel a sense of empowerment just by taking the action. Because one of the consequences of this is feeling so out of control and so unempowered, disempowered by what's happened. That even just sort of taking stock of, okay, what's my nutrition like? Can I improve it? Can I have more, ho more whole foods that are going to be able to repair, you know, encourage repairing of tissues in, in the body and things like that. Um, can you get a bit of exercise? Can you get more fresh air? Can you, do you need to reduce the amount of time you spend with certain people or increase the time you spend with other people, et cetera, et cetera. So I think doing a life audit um, of some kind, however you want to say it, is, is a really good thing. And I think lastly, um, 
find your why. And I realize that possibly sounds a little bit cheesy, but it's very, very powerful. I think when it comes to calibrating the mind and body to finding its way to heal, because if you have that, why, why are you trying to heal? What are you trying to work towards? Do you want to be there as the mom or dad that you want to be? Do you want to be there for your parents? Do you want to build that business? Do you want to X, Y, Z? There's an infinite amount of possibilities in this world. So what is that thing that drives you inside? Because I think if you can click with that and feel a sense of, okay, even if I can't go and make it happen tomorrow, the very thought of it maybe happening one day and taking baby steps towards it, I think that adds a sort of magic, a magic fuel to the to the system of recovery. Yeah, I think it's great. And and, and obviously I, I know your whole story. And I think what I think is very beautiful about your story, even though it's horrible what happened to you, um, is that you got so in touch with your creative side and started to paint and write music and, and all that stuff. I'm like, that is so awesome. It's kind of like we're in this horrible place, um, but we make the best of it. And that you're like a, a good example of, okay, if we're very sick, this is what we can do. Um, and it ended up being something super productive for you, like writing music and it was therapy at the same time and you're super creative. So I think you're, you're a big inspiration to me in that sense. Oh, thank you so much. That really means a lot. So thank you for coming on the show and I will be in touch with you. Thank you, Nassau. Have a great day. And, uh, yeah, thanks again for having me. Thank you for listening to the episode. Be well, be safe. Remember, it's not a race. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to support the show, go to paypal.me slash